I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today's guest is Sean McGovern, CEO UK and Lloyds at AXAXL. Sean was first on the show a year and a half ago, when he was less than a year into his first industry CEO role. When we last spoke, he was in the middle of a root and branch remediation of AXAXL's book, the severity of which had taken many by surprise. As a senior Lloyds executive and spokesperson, Sean had been in the public eye for many years, so everyone knew he would be able to handle that side of the job. But if anyone had any doubts about his ability to lead a tough underwriting turnaround, they were dispelled as AXA Excel's Syndicate 2003 posted a vintage 75% combined ratio in 2021. That's a 59-point improvement on the previous year. I think the difference between the two podcasts is palpable. Here is a confident and forward-looking executive with growth on his mind in all areas of his business. As a result, this is a really positive discussion with one of Lloyd's largest players about today's opportunities, as well as the major issues affecting the London market as a whole. I can highly recommend a listen. Enjoy the podcast. This episode is supported by Oxbow Partners. Oxbow Partners is a management consulting business specialising in the London, Bermuda and European insurance and reinsurance markets. In fact, in 2021 and 2022, they were named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. It's fascinating speaking to the team about the kinds of topics they're supporting. Helping reinsurers take a strategic view of their operating models, designing smart follow syndicates in the Lloyds market, and developing ESG responses. The company's strapline talks about giving executives a fresh perspective. So if you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, I'd recommend giving the team at Oxbow Partners a call. Sean, welcome back to The Voice of Insurance. Great to be back with you, Mark. You had a really, really good year in 2021, a sub-75% combined ratio. Looking back with hindsight on that, does that mean that you overcooked all that remediation work you did? Well, it's a great question to start with. So I guess, firstly, for us, 2021 was a pivotal year for a whole bunch of reasons, which I'm sure we'll get into. And Syndicate 2003 went from being one of the syndicates with consistent poor performance in the Lloyd's market to one that went to being one of the best with that combined ratio of 75%, as you said, Mark, which don't come across those sort of results very often. And, and it was the strongest result the syndicates ever posted and one of the strongest results in the market. And of course, we did get a lift from the rating environment. And we did, of course, get some releases from prior years. But the hard yards of the work that we did to reposition and re-underwrite the book in 2020 and in 2021 ultimately delivered that strong performance. So to get to your question about did we overcook the remediation? No, I don't think we did. I mean, if you look at the performance history of the syndicate, we had to take a very hard and very fresh look in the mirror at what was working and and what was not working. And frankly, we used the opportunity we had to redefine everything about our business and did that in a very strategic way. What lines do we want to be in? What appetite do we have across the business? What's our seeded strategy? How do we use the Lloyd's platform versus our non-Lloyd's platform? And how ultimately do we want to go Uh, to market, to serve our clients and our brokers. So we didn't shy away from making any of the tough decisions we had to make. There were certain things we had to stop doing. 
either because they just weren't delivering for us or because you know they weren't the right strategic fit for us anymore. We took a very hard look at our delegated portfolio. We set ourselves clear expectations about price adequacy, particularly on CAT. And we did all that because it wasn't just about delivering strong performance in 21, as important as that was. That, of course, was just table stakes for us. It was about building a portfolio that ultimately played to our strengths and that we believed was sustainable in the long term, because ultimately we wanted to create a platform which we had confidence in and confidence in that we could grow from. So I don't think we overcooked it. I think we took all of the steps we had to take. And it was really just taking the opportunity to just look at and stare hard at what we were doing, why we were doing it, and make decisions that set us up for the future. This is much more sticking to things that you're really good at. And I suppose if everyone stuck to everything they're really good at, then we could expect these kind of combined ratios. And you're saying it was much more of a structural thing than a cyclical thing. It's not just that tailwind from some of the rating environment. No, I mean, we basically did a total root and branch review of the business. And, you know, if you think about this, a business that's been through two acquisitions from XL acquiring Catlin and then AXA acquiring XL Catlin and then merging some of the AXA businesses into AXA XL, we hadn't really took that root and branch review. So we had to make sure that the business that we were doing in London, in the UK and Lloyd's business unit was strategically fitting with what we were trying to achieve as AXA Group overall and AXA XL as a division within the AXA Group. So we took the opportunity to do that, focus on our strengths, focus on things that are complementary to what we're doing elsewhere within the group. And yeah, focusing on the bottom line performance, but you know, with an aspiration to grow, but grow confidently from a position of strength. So the business has completely changed, you'd say. And, and how much of that change is sort of cultural in the way you go about things? Well, I don't think you can achieve that kind of change without fundamentally changing the culture and the way in which you reward success within the business, the way you signal to people what's important. So cultural is absolutely a, a part of that. We are very focused on delivering bottom line performance. Of course, we have top line aspirations as well, but there is no getting away from the discipline around uh, delivering earnings. But it takes a culture of discipline and focus. And you mentioned that the business has changed. It's basically changed in every single respect, whether it's the way in which we look at our portfolio, the way we measure our success, and culturally within the organization in what we signal to people as what's important. So now that things are structurally changed, we should expect this sort of performance. You've designed this in a way that you would hope and expect this performance and outperformance to continue throughout the cycle and throughout as the market develops. Well, we certainly strive for strong performance and outperformance wherever we can. I and mean, we have to accept that we're in a very uncertain environment and we will react quickly to events. But fundamental to what we're doing is striving for strong profit, strong earnings delivery, and that will remain a focus. Whether we will achieve a consistent 75 net combined, I think that might be a little bit ambitious, but we're certainly going to aim high in terms of what we deliver to AXA. Obviously, this year, 22, there's a return to some modest growth. What are the top priorities for that growth? Where's that growth going to come from and where are you going to be happiest if it comes from? Because of the, the hard yards that we did throughout 2020 and 2021, as I mentioned, we are in the fortunate position that we effectively built our portfolio from the ground up. So we have re-underwritten everything. And so when it comes to looking for growth opportunities, we are able to do that with confidence. And we're in the position in that effectively what we're doing is looking for growth across all of our lines of business. 
But as you said, we're focused on playing to our strengths, and that is means we're particularly looking out for opportunities to grow in the specialty market. More than three quarters of what we do in the UK business is specialty business, and we're already a a noted lead market in most of those specialty lines of business. So we want to play to our strengths as a leader in those lines of business and work on our strong broker relations that we have in London to drive growth in the specialty lines. And of course, London is a specialty hub for AXA XL and therefore for AXA. And that, again, is complementary to AXA's overall profile and plays to our strength. But we aren't just a specialty player and we're also looking for growth in the corporate client business that we have. AXA XL, including in the UK, is a major player in the risk managed and large account space. We've got strong risk consulting and global program capabilities. And we absolutely have room to grow there for sure, because I don't think we really fully leverage the opportunity we have now as part of AXA Group to bring the very best of AXA to our corporate clients. And that includes across our regional business in the UK, by the way, where we have teams in Manchester and Birmingham, for example, where we've been working really well with our colleagues in AXA UK to drive growth across that part of our business over the last few years. And then, of course, as we look at other more longer term growth opportunities, ESG clearly presents new risks and opportunities for our clients. And we're making sure that we're well positioned to drive that energy transition response from the insurance market. And we think we also have something pretty compelling in that space too. So I guess across the board growth is what we're looking for. I think the market is lending itself to that. And I think we, given our scale in the market, I mean, we are producing about $3 billion of premium from the UK business. So we're a significant player in the market across all lines of business where we're recognized leaders. And it's really just driving that into those strong broker relationships to drive that growth. So it's more looking to build on what you've already got and say, well, we're already a leader in this. So now we get to do more of what we're good at and what we know we get to set the terms at, etc. Yeah, absolutely. At the end of the day, our focus is on leading business and our focus is on providing strong client propositions to our risk managed and large account clients. So absolutely, it's about playing to the strengths of that leadership and that strong client partnership that we build with our corporate clients. Certainly, Sean, I could see that AMIC, which is the UK, let's say for US listeners, RIMS, this is the Risk Management Society, the UK version, UK Risk Managers Trade Body, AMIC, has an annual conference. I could see that that was a big part of your diary and something that you made sure you attended. So you're trying to ram home your advantage in that. What sort of form might that take? Because it's quite an interesting relationship we've got with risk managers at the moment where let's say their attentions into captives have gone through the roof in this harder market. Are there opportunities there to build on those close relationships with risk managers themselves? I think so. I mean, if you think about the chat, and I think that's where I would hope the strength and depth of what we can bring to those client relationships across everything that AXA is doing is a key differentiator for us. Because the risk managers, if you think about it, and take your point around increasing levels of retention, but that's a very one-dimensional way of looking at the relationship with the clients because risk managers are facing a, a real uncertain future. They're looking for insurers to provide them with risk insights, advice, with risk consulting. We've got AXA Climate, which is highly skilled in looking and helping clients address the impact of climate risk. 
there is a whole bunch of things that we can bring to those client relationships that go beyond this year's renewal. And we are absolutely pushing the idea that we want to move away from being a payer of claims to being a partner with our clients, bringing the whole of the AXA group capabilities to those client relationships and getting away from a sort of transactional way of, of engaging with our clients. And I think if you commit to the relationship with a client, you can build something that's more long-term and sustainable. And at the end of the day, the more you can support the risk manager in facing into the uncertainty that they're trying to navigate their organizations through, I think the better. So we think there is big opportunities there for us. And as I say, believe we're sort of underweight from where we think we can get to in that space, which is why we were at AMIC in force and we're looking forward to growing that business over the next few years. You mentioned ESG in a previous interview. You mentioned ESG as a generational growth opportunity. Obviously, it's amazing. And who'd want to be a risk manager today with, when you've got ESG, you've got cyber and all sorts of other things going on. But this ESG, I mean, I would certainly agree with you. It's a huge opportunity. How are you going to go about it? It's such a big subject that touches almost everything, isn't it? How are you going to help those clients? Let's say the ones that are quite carbon heavy at the moment, obviously know that they're going to have to be on a transition, for example. The weight of challenge that I think society is facing and which society is then passing on to corporates and businesses here to stay we can get overly fixated with E and ESG, but there is a growing drive from all stakeholders, whether it's investors, society at large, regulators, and employees for businesses to be clear on how they are acting with purpose and preserving not only the environment, but also the societies and the communities within which they work. So that sense of corporate responsibility is high. And I think the insurance industry has always been a very purpose-led industry, sometimes without even shouting about it. So I think we're naturally well-placed to partner with clients as they are on that journey. It does present new risks, but with risks come opportunities. But it is a vast subject, and you're quite right. I think the insurance industry has been very focused over the last few years when it comes to the E and ESG of really focusing on what they're not going to do. So yeah. the withdrawal from coal is the scaling back of support for high carbon power. And I think the industry is now beginning to focus more, and certainly we are focused more on how it is that we support clients through that transition journey. And Part of that is understanding what good transition looks like. How are you going to identify the clients who are really on the bus with us that, you know, they really are committed to net zero, they're taking tangible steps, and how is it therefore you support them with some of their existing business, you support them as they explore new areas of business, and you support them in decommissioning old ways of sourcing power. So I think that it is very complex. We are committed to it. I mean, if you look at Access credentials in the space of ESG are very strong. If it's not tooting our horn too much, we picked up two awards at the, the insurer ESG awards this week. I think we're recognized as a leader. Access chairing the NZIA, which is the industry effort to really define the path to you know, how we're going to set targets to which we can hold ourselves accountable and which to which we can be held accountable to decarbonize our underwriting. So it's complex, but the commitment is there. And I think if you look at the strengths of the London market, stepping away from any individual carrier for a moment, you know, the strength of the London market is really pioneering in new risk areas. And ESG is presenting a whole range of new risk areas. 
And that should play to the market's strengths because it's going to take collective effort to do it. If you look at the level of investment that is going to come in to support the transition is going to be huge. None of this investment is going to get deployed without insurance solutions being a fundamental part of providing the framework within which investors and others will invest. And so insurance has a huge role to play. And I think it really does play to the strengths of the London market. It's going to take creativity. It's going to take collaboration. And I think that lends very well to the sort of ecosystem of broking and underwriting skill and other services that we have already got in the London market. So taken from that, would you agree that we probably need some kind of common framework? And obviously, we can all compete with our own different special solutions and insights, etc. But do we need some kind of common way of measuring ESG? So look, there has to be some form of standardization. And that is starting to emerge. So step out of insurance for a minute, you've got the International Sustainability Standards Board that's really starting to try to put some framework about uh, sustainable finance and how you measure and, and report on sustainable finance. As I mentioned, the end of the eye when you come to insurance is trying to corral the industry around measurement framework, which insurers can be held accountable and where investors can see relative performance. And I think that's a good thing. I think a key thing for us to think about is how are we going to approach our clients on this? Because at the end of the day, we have to go and ask our clients for information. And I think we have to put the client at the center of this because there is a risk that we're all going to invent our own data sets and our own way of framing questions. And if you look at it from the client perspective, they're going to get inundated with a whole range of different sets of questions from different brokers and different carriers. So I think some alignment around that is going to have to be critical because otherwise the clients are going to get overwhelmed and it's not going to reflect well on the industry. And what about some of the work that Lloyd's is doing? Probably for next year's business planning, there's going to be ESG elements in there. Do you think that could be a way of standardizing things? I mean, anything that Lloyd's can do to sort of corral the Lloyd's market, I think the attention that Lloyd's is paying, DSG is really important. I think it's going to raise everybody's game. I think we would argue that we're probably more advanced than others, but it is important that everybody's operating at the right kind of level and giving this the right level of attention. So I think what Lloyd's is doing is important. Lloyd's is obviously chairing the SMI, the Sustainable Markets Initiative for Insurance. I'm on that group. So I think we all have to put our shoulders to the wheel to drive industry efforts to get the right level of focus on this and standardize wherever we can. Because as I said, if you look at it from a client perspective, that's absolutely critical. We can't go off in a thousand and one different directions. So we've got to keep it client focused, otherwise we'll drive the clients crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Always good. And obviously that other element that's closest to the client is the broker. Well, it always seems that we're always consolidating in broking, particularly in the London market, wholesale broking, but it's had a particularly hot wave of consolidation and it's, things seem to be boiling down to obviously we've got the big three brokers and it seems to be about 10 fairly substantial wholesale broking groups in London. Do you think this is going to fundamentally change the character of the market? Whereas perhaps 30 years ago, you could have had a thousand, two or three partner firms that were specialists in one or two very niche lines. These days, We're talking about businesses with 100 million plus revenue as a kind of table stakes. Is that going to change the market? I mean, do you think it'll make it better, for example, they'll be able to invest more in technology and in standardizing some of these ESG initiatives and other things, for example? I mean, as you say, I think we've been in a particularly dynamic period on the broken side, you know, not just with the M&A, but with all of the talent that's been moving around to the market. And of course, all of that creates a bit of 
disruption and fuels a talent market that was already very hot. But ultimately, I think it's a good thing because I think it helps us deliver better for our clients. Everyone has to raise their game. I think if we were in a situation where the London market, whether on the broker side or the carrier side, was static, complacency would creep in, we'd lose innovation and we'd lose that need to constantly strive to do better. So competition is a good thing. I do think that as we see the emergence, if you like, of a sort of, and I hesitate to use the word, the kind of next tier outside of the big three, clearly that creates more opportunity for client choice. And clearly there are clients around who are looking for choice outside of the big three and looking for perhaps brokers who can offer something a little bit different and perhaps come across as being a little bit hungrier for the business. So I think Having brokers with an additional level of scale and depth, I think, is making those brokers more relevant to clients and easier for markets to deal with. And I do think that the sort of emergence of the top three happened many, many years ago. And we've always had this sort of relatively long tail of other London brokers. And yes, it's reduced over time, but not probably as quickly as people might have thought over the last 10 years. And so there was clearly some value proposition there for those brokers, particularly in the wholesale space. And I don't think we should underestimate that. But the point you raise about technology and investment is a good one because the sort of steps that we are having to take as a market to drive efficiency in the way that we trade is going to start becoming a challenge for some of the smaller brokers because you can't sit on the sidelines as the rest of the market drives the modernization agenda And so I do think that that's going to become increasingly challenging, may see some more consolidation at the smaller end, if you like. But I think that whole dynamic picture is just really good for the market. And it sort of adds to client choice and it adds to innovation and depth and strength. I suppose these days, you know, that sort of second tier, whereas 20 years ago, they wouldn't have done these days. They've all got chief information officers and they've got operations people who are quite good at heavy lifting and probably involved in transformation projects and the sort of thing. Whereas before... 30 years ago, they would have had to leave it to a committee of some description and not necessarily have the expertise. But as a carrier, are you more worried that these brokers are bigger and they've got more leverage over you and more likely to sort of divide and rule you as the big three have been doing for the last 20 years? It's a balance, isn't it? I mean, the carriers complain about too much broker consolidation, of course. But on the other hand, at a much more practical level from a carrier point of view, A less fragmented and better resourced market is a good thing in the sense that it gives an easier entry point. You can often end up with better quality submissions, better and smoother communication. And actually, you can make an investment in the relationship with the broker that helps you drive your client proposition to them and then onwards to their client. But I do think having that entry point through bigger brokers with those emerging brokers, if you like, it does help us get closer to our clients because it allows us to invest in the relationship. And as I say, allow us to showcase what we can deliver for our clients. So I'm positive. We have excellent relationships with the big three, as I'm sure you would expect me to say, and we get huge value out of the relationships and they will remain very, very important to us. But equally, we have strong relationships with the next tier and they are doing some really interesting and innovative things to drive their business forward. And in many ways, like any business, they are perhaps more nimble and more hungry and more innovative than perhaps the larger brokers might be. And that's no different to large carriers versus small startups. And it's good for the market. And it's a balance. It's a balance. We want both. 
And these days, of course, if they're more sophisticated, they come with more sophisticated propositions that are better worked out and better submissions and much more data. And I suppose make it easier for you to underwrite. Yeah, because as you say, they can deliver the data you need to see what's going on with your portfolio, where you're winning, where you're not winning, and allowing you to adjust and drive the business forward. So absolutely. Well, let's talk about the London market as a whole, as an ecosystem. We've talked about waves of consolidation. We always have waves of London market reform because the reform is always happening all the time. Sometimes it's happening more publicly or more obviously than other times. At the moment, we're in a much more public transformation period. How's that going from your perspective? Do you think that reform is proceeding fast enough to keep the market relatively competitive or do you think it's stalled? Well, I don't think you could ever say that market reform is fast. (laughs) I think the truth is we've had too many years, lots of talk, lots of consultants, very, very grand designs and not really a lot of delivery. So it is very easy to be critical and sceptical about the market's sort of efforts in the space. And it is a curious thing, isn't it? Because we've never been short of senior leaders support either. I mean, who's going to say that they're not in favour of modernising the market? So we've always had the kind of senior level buy-in, but still it's not been possible to translate that leader buy-in into the executing the change, which I think everyone can see needs to happen. Now, I do think that the last couple of years have changed the game. I think firstly, the enforced remote working where we required underwriters and brokers to trade in a fundamentally different way very quickly and credit to everybody. They adapted fast and had PPL as an underpinning and, and thank goodness for that. But I do think that has taken away some of the historic assumptions about how the market has to operate in order to be successful. And I think that has been a cultural barrier in the past. And I do think we have overcome that now. And the market is not going to go back to the way things used to be done. It's just not. So we're starting the modernization, if you like. We're continuing the modernization from a fundamentally different place from where we were and a much better place, which lends itself to looking for process and technology improvements to support the way we're now working rather than the way we used to work. And the second thing I would say is that I think the foundations are now in place in a way that they weren't before. I think the joint solution plan that Lloyd's DXE, IUA and supported by the LMA have signed up to, I think the interests of the parties are aligned, which hasn't always been the case in the past. And with the release of you know, the Blueprint 2 roadmap, I think it's given everybody greater clarity over what needs to be done and by when. And I think all of those things are welcome developments. So as I said, it's understandable why people are sceptical, but I think the situation is quite different now for the reasons I've said. And I do think that it's the responsibility of everybody to get behind the plan and the timetable because we absolutely need this reform. We can't carry it on like we've been doing. And what about the core data record? That's another achievement of the market to have finally agreed on what are the core elements of a contract with the goal to make them more computable? I mean, is that the beginning of a big bang or something? Is it the final ingredient you need to have a big bang? Because, you know, you need some kind of tinder. You know, is it something we can point to and say, oh, well, that was a really big moment? Whether it's a big deal, I think it's certainly foundational. I think it's a key part of the foundations on which we can now build. I think, you know, it's got support of the LMG Data Council. I think everybody agrees that we need to start with data. I mean, currently everyone's looking at all of the same type of data, but we're doing it in different formats and different structures. So the standardization of the core data fields required to bind a risk, I mean, it sounds very simple, but we haven't had that really before in any meaningful way. And and without that, you can't really then drive efficiency and speed through the rest of the process. 
So I do think that it is an important part of the process. And then when you link it up with the MRC, that's going to be the way in which we move forward. And we've got to move from document first to digital first. And you can't do that without agreeing what the data standards are going to be and what the data fields are going to be. And people will be making that journey at different speeds, but you have to start somewhere. And I think agreeing a minimum data structure is an important first step. And just for any listeners, the MRC is the market reform contract, which is, let's say, the modern version of a slip. And there's now a consultation to turn that into, again, a bit like using the core data record to turn it into the, the sort of intelligent version. Sorry, I slipped into uh, no, it's all good. market reform jargon there. Well, what about the big vision? We underestimate the change over the really long term. What do you think a, a market in 15 or 20 years might look like that is fully digital? And then how's your business going to be playing in that market in this new way? I presume everything's going to be much faster and frictional costs are going to be much lower or maybe even zero. What kind of environment is that going to create for a carrier like yourself? Everybody is looking at how they are preparing better for a digital future because it is coming. I mean, we aren't obviously just focused on the London market is something we're focused on across the whole of the AXA XL business. We are investing in that right now because having fully turned around the business, it's now about making the business future-proof. And that is all about getting ready to ingest and be able to analyze data and process that data digitally in as most efficient way as you can. So it is a critical area for the business. And of course, many parts of the financial services industry and indeed many other parts of the insurance industry are very well advanced in a more commoditized space in doing this. And it's a question of how do you translate that into a market that is less commoditized, but will become to some extent more commoditized. And I think we have to accept part of driving this efficiency is some of the ways in which we've done it are overly complex and we can commoditize and we can drive efficiency and the data standard is a part of that. So our ambition ultimately is we want to be an underwriting business that is tech and data led. You know, that's where we're going to have to go to. And everybody's on that journey. Everyone's probably in slightly different places, but it is the way in which we're going because even in London, people probably said, well, we can never do without face-to-face trading. Well, now everyone's saying, how do we get face-to-face trading back? So I think this is a much more natural progression, as I said earlier, from where we are post-pandemic to perhaps where we were pre-pandemic. When all this build is done, you'll have risks circulating that have had a lot of face-to-face and all the bespoke work done on them, and they've got the lead line down, and then they're sort of circulating in the digital world where perhaps a lot of follow markets are then now bidding on that risk and saying, well, I'll support this, I'll support 10%, 5%. And then it's a bit like sort of sitting in one of those sushi restaurants where the food comes around on a conveyor belt and, and the, the lead market and the brokers will be putting these risks on conveyor belt. And maybe some of the follow market will be, some of them semi-automatically or fully automatically bidding on completing those placements. Would you see yourself more as the leader side of that, an investment in fully digital follow market capacity, or would you look at both? Yeah, so look, I think the innovations that happened in the market on that with the follow syndicates and key and other examples, I think, again, I think all credit to those businesses. I think those are really interesting innovations. And there is a place for that because no one can pretend that the way in which follow market capacity has been corralled in the past is efficient. So I think undoubtedly, whether it's through actions taken by carriers, whether it's actions taken by brokers, ACT was a sort of early example, I guess, the Aon Client Treaty a few years ago. They will find efficiency and more efficient ways of bringing follow capacity to a risk. 
we do write follow lines, but that's for us, that's not playing to our strengths. It's not where we really add the value because you just become capacity at that point. Yeah. Our value is in being a leader and our value is underwriting intelligently. And the use of technology, the use of AI is about augmenting our underwriting. It's not about replacing it. So that's how I would draw the distinction. I'd like to ask you, obviously, in the wider world, in the UK regulatory environment, to draw on your vast experience in that, dealing with UK regulators in your career. Again, we've had an opportunity, and perhaps this probably because of Brexit, an opportunity to reopen the negotiation, the social contract that the insurance industry has with the government on how it's regulated. And you've been part of that, and you've been sort of making declarations to various committees and things on that. And the main thrust of that from the market's perspective has been to bring in an element of the regulators should take into account the competitive position of the market as a consequence of its actions. I mean, how much of a chance do you think we've got of getting that? How do you gauge it at the moment in terms of the willingness of government to perhaps change those rules a bit? Well, firstly, there's a degree of political uncertainty, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Or there always is, with a huge caveat there, yeah. But there is a new financial services bill, and that will move at some point. And based on government intentions and what they've been consulting on, it looks like we will, at a minimum, get a secondary objective for regulators on growth and competitiveness. And that's, as you say, something we've been pushing for, the London Market Group have been pushing for for some time. So I don't actually think it's a question of if, I think it is going to happen. And it's important because the London market is an an international marketplace. I mean, it competes for business, capital and talent. All of those things are mobile and we don't have a market without all three of those dimensions. And in order to be able to bring that business, that capital, that talent to our shores, we have to have a regulatory tax and supervisory framework that's proportionate and doesn't put us at a disadvantage. So what we're arguing for is you need a regulatory regime that gets the balance right in terms of protecting the economy and consumers. And nobody, by the way, is looking for a radical reduction in regulation. In fact, good regulation is key to creating the conditions that capital is confident to deploy and business is confident to flow in. So it is an important part of it. But it is possible to regulate markets for safety and soundness and to promote growth and what is ultimately an export-led part of the economy. And I think that's something the government, as it looks around for opportunities post-Brexit, I think the government is on board with that. So I feel today quite positive that it will come. And I think the regulators, from conversations that I've had with them, they do recognise the challenge we're raising. And I do think we're starting to already, particularly with the PRA, see some moves in the right direction. Is it loading another contradiction onto regulators? Obviously, the global financial crisis revealed the split within the FSA. And of course, then it's split into two to say that you can't have a regulator that is looking to prudential concerns and at the same time asking you to treat the customers absolutely fairly. These are two things that pull in opposite directions. You know, one to conserve capital and one to, no, please pay every single claim. Is loading a competitive remit onto a regulator, is that fair on the regulators? Or do you think that other regulators and other supervisors are able to do this in other jurisdictions? If you take a particular view, you could view them as conflicting. I don't. And as you say, there are plenty of examples of other regulators in other countries who are already doing this and do it very well. I mean, Bermuda, Singapore, Switzerland, the obvious example. So obviously, a lot of this comes down to how it's ultimately implemented. But I think our regulators are more than capable of navigating through two sets of priorities. You know, businesses do it all the time. I don't see why regulators would be any different in that respect. 
I think what's important here is that we create the right level of conversation between the industry and the regulators, but also importantly, the right level of accountability to the government, to the parliament, because if I'm right and we're going to get this objective, then it's really important that we have a way of knowing whether or not the regulators are meeting that. How are they going to meet that objective and how do we measure whether they are meeting that objective? And so having transparency and getting dialogue going with the industry will be critical. Ultimately, I do think, Mark, one of the problems we have is, yes, regulation is never perfect, but I do think we sometimes are left with perception drives reality. And I think that's so important when businesses have choices about where to deploy capital. And most of the businesses that have operations in London do have choices. Yeah, there can be quite a negative perception about UK regulation, and that perception drives decisions. So I do think part of this is just reframing and pressing the reset button with the benefit, I guess, of coming post-Brexit, saying the UK is open for business for specialty insurance and reinsurance. And this is why and this is how we're doing it. And I think part of it is getting the message out, but it can't get away from the need to make some fundamental changes in the way the regulators behave and the way in which they approach issues. So it's just to give them a cultural reset and also to, to perhaps yes, wave a flag to those who assumed, oh, no, no, UK is going to be too stodgy, can be too slow, I'll do it somewhere else, to say, well, actually, you should think again, have another look and come talk to us. Yeah, and I think there's a bit of a burden on the industry here to help the regulators get the message out. So it's all too easy to talk down regulation because it's all too easy to do that. But actually, when the regulators are doing some good things, we should be talking about it and getting the message outside of the UK into other centres. Well, I suppose from culture change and regulation, my last question would be about culture change within the market itself, about personal behaviours in the marketplace that have come so much under the spotlight in the last few years. Recently, we've had the employee A case, uh, fine. How do you view that? Do you think that's a positive thing, You know, making public examples of poor behaviour so that that poor behaviour doesn't happen again? Or are we reinforcing by perhaps doing so much dirty laundry in public? Are we enhancing our already fairly poor reputation amongst some of the young talent out there? Clearly, it's not a great investment for our industry. And actually, I don't believe that it's reflective of the culture and behaviour of the vast, vast majority of the people who work in our market. But what I do think it does, and I think the fact that it's been publicised, I do think it shows that nobody leaving a business and no business can be complacent. And we need to set the right expectation of the behaviours that we expect and pay close attention to and be ready to respond firmly and robustly if something does happen. It's a tricky balance. I do think on balance, it's a good thing because what we can't afford to be accused of as a market is sort of sweeping things under the carpet. And I do think the incident has generated a lot of discussion in the market. It's come up several times in discussions I've had with other CEOs, and I think that's a good thing. So whilst it's not a great advertisement, I do think calling out things that are unacceptable has an important place. It shines a light on it. And it ensures that we all as organisations sort of self-reflect and make sure that we're doing all of the right things within our own organisations, bedding the right level of expectation around how people behave, encouraging our colleagues to speak up and that we're ready to act. I mean, certainly within my own business, I used it as an opportunity in front of all of our colleagues to talk about those kind of things are just not acceptable within our business. If you see it, you need to speak up about it. If it happens, we will act and we will act vigorously. So I do think that's important. So it's not a great advertisement, but I think to bring about the longer term change, I think it's a good thing. Well, you couldn't be clearer of the message from you. So thanks very much for that, Sean. And thank you so much for all of your time. We've had a really wide ranging discussion. I've really enjoyed it. 
And I think the time's up. So I'll leave you back to the day job. Thank you, Mark. Good to chat as always. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.